Y'all ready to be history? It's started. Welcome. Hi. 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 Hello, everyone. To the Pro Audio Suite. Thanks to Rode Microphones. These guys are professional. They're motivated. Introducing Robert Marshall from Source Elements and Someone Audio Post, Chicago. Darren Robbo Robertson from Voodoo Radio Imaging, Sydney. Tech to the VO Stars. George the Tech Whitam from LA. And me, Andrew Peters. Voiceover talent and home studio guy. A couple of weeks back, we did a Rupert Neve special, and one of our special guests was Bill Drescher. Now, we didn't get much of a chance to talk to Bill about his career, and dare I say, it's illustrious, to say the least. So we've asked Bill to come back, which he has decided to do, which is surprising. Is. <laughs> <laughs> After that drubbing, drubbing right, right, absolutely. <laughs> I'm back, so, I'm back. He's back. He's back. <laughs> Welcome back, Bill. Thank you very much. Good to be back. Now, I want to go right the way back because um, it could be an interesting uh, journey of yours. You were still playing in bands when Sound City opened. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah, our band was uh, actually we walked through the the door on day one and, um, you know, got our pick of all this Vox equipment and uh, we rehearsed and there was different incarnations of the bands at the time. and But um, I started there actually as an employee in the summer of 69 and, um, you know, sort of transitioned from being a musician in a band to a producer engineer behind the glass. You weren't playing a six string, were you? That would work in really well with Brian Adams. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) No, I was was mainly a bass player, but as a, as a kid, I had four years of piano and I had a year of guitar and I also play a little drums. So I, I, you know, some bands you'd switch around and you'd play a little bit of everything. So, you know, have a basic knowledge of those four things. So your first memory of walking into the building, which became Sound City. You know, I have early memories of, you know, uh, there was only a Studio A. There wasn't, there was a, a Studio B, but no control room. Um, there was a lot of open space. It was filled up with a lot of instruments. There was... Uh, a big sort of machine room full of EMT plates, uh, mic lockers and tape vaults and that type of stuff. Yeah, because that used to be the Vox factory or was it a Vox? It was It was their actually recording studio and um, it was managed by a guy named Bill Page who was a, a woodwinds player and he played with Lawrence Welk, but he also had his own band and it was the Bill Page Amplophonic Orchestra, and they had all these little uh, Vox amps and Vox music stands. And so he was the studio manager uh, when Joe took over. And I think Bill stayed there for another couple months or so, and and uh, then he left. And you know, it was Joe Leahy sort of managed it after that. He was a good friend of Joe's, Joe Godfrey's. Because you always think about Vox, you know, Vox amplifiers, guitar amps, because they were the ones who actually, I think it was, was it the Shadows who um, talked to them about getting their, making their amplifiers louder because the, the gigs were getting more and more noisy? <laughs> I, I, that's I good. Think, I think that's what happened. And they, they changed the, the, you know, made the, obviously their amps louder. Wow. But you never kind of think of them making music in, um, you know, in a studio. Yeah, when we walked in there, I mean, we had our pick of all this stuff, like I said. And, and um, as a bass player, um, I, I, of course, had to have two Super Beatles. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. It was loud, but not a great sound. And, and the Vox Factory was actually 
right down the street, uh, maybe a couple miles west on Roscoe Boulevard. And we'd have to go down there occasionally to, you know, get parts or whatever. And they had a really classic looking Super Beetle in the showroom that was made out of clear acrylic plastic that was pretty uh, pretty wow. neat to look at. Yeah. Very tasty. Yeah. So what was the studio like before um, the Neve and everything went in? Um, originally, there was an Electrodyne console in there. Mm. And I think it was maybe, I don't know, 20 inputs or something. And it was always breaking down all the time. It had a lot of plug-in op amps that would just crap out and you'd have to pull them out and reseed them. And, you know, I can remember one time I was setting up for a pretty big orchestra session. A cartridge guy came in and picked up the telephone to use it, set the telephone down, and the whole console crapped out. (laughs) (laughs) So then you're like, you're just scrambling, you know, to try and get the thing back online, you know. And luckily it did, but it it wasn't good, you know. What would crap out on a console like that? I'm just curious. Well, usually, I think it was where the op amps were seated in in the connectors that they they were pretty heavy, and they'd sort of flop around, you know. And um, so, I, I think that was the main problem. You can just imagine the signs put up: um, "We're about to record. Do not open the fridge." <laughs> yeah, <laughs> don't touch but, anything. But that kind <laughs> of crap continues. It's like you know, it does. I can I can think of in the winter time. With, especially when you have your computer far away from your where you're working, so you have a long USB run, and then it gets dry, and the wrong person walks through the threshold of the door, and like, psh, no mouse. And then it's a big pain <laughs> in the ass to like, get the mouse back, usually a reboot at least. Yeah, so. absolutely. I'm so used to that from the digital domain and the computer world what I, that I spend my life in. So that's why I was so curious what kind of things that I'm familiar with went wrong back in the day, you know? <laughs> the same stuff. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I still I still run across you know things crapping out, even on modern consoles. You know, like at uh, Hanson, you know, there'd be like you know switches, bus switches, and EQ switches that no matter how many times you exercise them, they just would not get happy. You know, and so then you switch to a different mic pre, and maybe that one was bad too. And so then you'd have to go to an outboard Neve mic pre. You know, and oh no, and finally you know you got a clear signal. But, you know. Oh man. Yeah. <laughs> and, and 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 what board is that? Uh, SSLG. Okay. Yeah, it, it's a great sounding console. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it works really good. It it replaced the Neve that was in there, and mm. the, the Neve at the end had a lot of problems and things crapping out and getting distorted and you know. Which, which Neve? Which Neve was it? Was it like a like a V or a, or was it a? No, it was it was pre V. That's for sure. I. I don't remember the um, okay. the number of it. Like a, like a Rupert Neve Neve. Yeah, with the jukebox yeah. thing on the left-hand side. And I think it was the uh, four-band EQs that were in it. Yeah, that was the that was one of the early ones, because that was A&M before it came out. Exactly. Yeah. 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 So going back to Sound City, though, do you remember the early bands that you recorded? And do you remember who they were? Yeah, it's some of the first bands that... Um, you know, that I recorded were actually bands that I was in because I was learning at that point. But um, some of the other bands that, um, like, when I was maybe, like, 21 or something, uh, we did Neil Young. Um, 
We did that spirit record, 12 Dreams of Dr. Sardonicus. Um, Nils Lofgren, uh, Crazy Horse. Chipmunks, right? That, that was later. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I sent you the discography stuff. I can't remember it all. <laughs> so what is, what is the chipmunk sound? Is it recorded, you know, just recorded slow and then played fast? Exactly. That's exactly it. <laughs> Yeah. So, so here's here's a question that you may not want to answer, but it, it's I don't think it's any secret on this show. I'm pretty sure I've revealed before that my first ever audio gig was in radio, and on my very first day, I ma- I managed to erase a 15 inch quarter inch tape that was full of promo masters. Um, I put the wrong tape box in the in the bulk eraser. Uh, are there any spectacular? Um, whoops moments from your first <laughs> few sessions at Sound City? <laughs> um, <clears throat> well, uh, yes and no. I mean, uh, back when there wasn't a lot of money in, coming into the studio, the owners would try and, you know, cut corners and uh, wherever they could. And this one time I was doing a band called Ethos, a sort of progressive rock band that was very good. And... Um, Joe Godfrey had given me a bunch of reels of tape to use, and he was billing the client, you know, like for a new tape. And as we're recording, and it was a really good take that we were doing, I happen to look over at the machine, and I'm seeing splices go through. <laughs> 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 oh, yeah. And my heart just sank. And, you know, I, I think I broke it out into a sweat, you know. And <laughs> I, I knew this wasn't going to be good. And sure enough, we go to play yeah. it back. And it's there's old. like, slice goes by. There's a slight drop out. You know, the producer's going, what the hell was that? Right. And I'm going, well, here's what's going on, you know. And so that was, yeah. that was a really big disaster, you know. <laughs> Ouch. But, uh, there was um, another time that, um, at Sound City, and I wasn't engineering this session. Uh, another engineer, Gary Brandt, was doing it. And he was doing Frank Hoffman, who's Dustin Hoffman's cousin. And at the end of the session, and Frank had been, let's we'll say, partying for a long time, right? So at the end of the session, which is like now five in the morning, Gary mm-hmm. takes Frank's tapes out to the office, fill out the paperwork, and Gary puts Frank's tapes on top of somebody else's tapes. Frank goes to leave, picks up the whole pile, and Gary says, no, 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 you've got, you know, somebody else's tapes there. And Frank flips out, opens up his briefcase, and pulls out a gun. And, <laughs> <laughs> and then he calls the police department and says he's holding the engineer hostage at Sound City, and he wants an armored car for him and his tapes, or he's going to kill the engineer. <laughs> what? Oh, my God. Yeah. And so the SWAT squad came and da 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 And finally, uh, one of the police put his hands through the mail slot in the door, held Frank's hands. They said the Lord's Prayer, and Gary, the engineer, runs out the back door. And, and so Frank goes to jail for this, of course. And he gets out of jail, and he comes back to the studio, and he wants to book time with Gary again. <laughs> <laughs> Gary and Joe Godfrey both go, sorry, we're booked. 
Yeah. We're booked until when's the next millennium again? <laughs> yeah. Holy How cow. long are you planning on living? Yeah, okay, we'll do it after that then. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Back then there was there was just so much craziness and wacky stuff going on. There'd be fights, there'd be, you know, way too much drugs and it was it was just crazy, crazy times. I remember being in at Sigma Sound and and finding out, you know, hearing about this whole concept that the the celebrity or the star, the whatever, they they never carried any drugs. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> there was somebody else who was carrying the drugs. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Those bad influencers, the Candyman or whatever yeah. they were called. You know, yeah. Mister Nice, I think, was another yeah. term used. Yeah. I was a 22-year kid out of college, you know, my first internship. I'm just like, eyes like saucers. Like, this is what happened. <laughs> <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> so probably one of the, getting back to Sound City again, but one of the most significant things that came out of Sound City was probably uh, the recording of Lindsey Buckingham and Stevie Nicks for the Buckingham Nicks record. Were you involved in that that record? No, that was strictly a Keith Olsen project. Do you remember anything about those sessions, though, you would have been around, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I just remember that it's it sounded really, really good, and it was very different for its time. So that was, it was a treat to hear it. Keith Olsen also, um, back in the 60s, he was partners with a guy named Kurt Betcher. Um, and Kurt Betcher was a brilliant vocal arranger and vocalist. He had done a lot of the association stuff. But um, they did a project called The Millennium for Columbia Records. And it was a, a groundbreaking record that unfortunately never saw the light of day. And I believe Keith, at the time, he was able to hook up either, it was either two eight tracks or two 16 tracks, which was pretty forward thinking back then to get those machines to lock up. When I first heard that record from Keith, I realized that, you know, he was super talented and, um, you know, had a lot of great uh, knowledge. I think I only seconded a couple sessions because I was instantly sort of thrown into being an engineer. But one I did assist was for Keith uh, when he did uh, Dr. John, the Night Tripper. And um, so that was kind of an early seconding project that I had. Because that record of, even though the record itself didn't do much, it was uh, the beginning of, you know, Fleetwood Mac becoming a mega band, um, and it, and it was a chance chance meeting that uh, that Mick Fleetwood just happened to hear the record when he was there at Sound City looking for somewhere to record. Yeah, yeah, and um, the guy that uh, actually produced Rumors, Richard Dashett, um, he was working at Sound City. He was my assistant a lot of the time, so. He went from being an assistant and riding a bicycle to, you know, producing uh, Fleetwood Mac and becoming a multi-gazillionaire. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So which album of Fleetwood Macs was recorded at Sound City? Because I know we touched on this last time we spoke. It was the very first one. I think it was just called Fleetwood Mac. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah, okay. And then Rumors was done at the Village. Right. Cool. So when they were recording the sessions for Fleetwood Mac, the Fleetwood Mac record, you would have obviously been privy to quite a bit of that being recorded. So do you remember much at all? Those were pretty much closed sessions, you know, and 
and you didn't really, you know, want to pop in and, you know, it was, it just wasn't done. And another record that Keith did there in Studio A that was a great record was the Grateful Dead Terrapin Station record. Well, well I'm looking at this discography and yeah, I can't, I'm, I'm really, I can't, I can't, holy cow. I'm looking at names in here. Evil Knievel. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Bill Cosby. What did you do with Evil Knievel? I mean, I, I was going to get to that when we got there, but. <laughs> he was going to jump over the Snake River. And mm-hmm. um, so he signed, I forget the name, the record company, but Ron Kramer, a good friend of mine, um, was producing it and uh, and was head of the company. And so it, it was kind of a thing where, well, if he dies, <laughs> jump in the river, we're going to sell a lot of records, right? It was a spec project. <laughs> Is that what you're saying? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you were betting on him, yeah. fighting it on the roof. Well, I wasn't betting it. I didn't know. No, it, no, but, no. Yeah, I but, wouldn't mean that. But I think that's kind of the gist of it. But, of course, he, he crashed, but he lived. So that was kind of the end of the thing. And um, we recorded uh, a couple songs for it. And and we had a live audience of uh, kids one one day. And then another night, we had a live audience of adults. And so actually, Evil Knievel kind of contradicted himself several times within those two days. And so it was a a lot of editing to uh, make it sound right. And then the story that I heard after that, that when uh, um, Kurt Cobain recorded at Sound City, he was an Evil Knievel fan. And supposedly he stole the tapes out of the library. Well, what? <laughs> yeah, I, had, I don't know if that's true or not, but that's what I heard. So. You can imagine when Evil Knievel arrived at the uh, at the studio, and, and you can just hear the person at the front desk saying, "I wish Evil Knievel would use the front door like everybody else." <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to hear the intercom page. Uh, Hello, everybody involved. Evil's here. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Evil's at the front Evil. door. Oh. Evil can evil. Evil's at the front desk. That's Mr. Evil's you. So, <laughs> so, so do you know Jeff Silverman? Oh, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Through super with, uh, talented guy. Right. Yeah. 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 Exactly. yeah actually, um, Jeff had a, a a solo production deal out of Sound City, which the uh, production company is called Carmen Productions. And um, I produced and engineered Jeff's solo project. And that's how Jeff and I actually met. And that was in the mid-70s, is that right? Yeah, probably late 70s, maybe okay. early 80s. Yeah. Yep, we've talked to him here on our show. Was it more than once now? A couple of times. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's been on like three times or two times. Yeah, <laughs> yeah quite a few times. Yeah, yeah. indeed. So um, what were the uh, some of the early sessions that were memorable at Sound City? Well, a lot of them were memorable for different things. I mean, you know, you talk about uh, like the chipmunks and different speeds and playing back at different speeds, whatever. But uh, I, I did a couple projects with Mel Blanc. You know, of course, did all the Looney Tune characters. Yeah. And, yeah. and he had a whole formula for every one of his characters. And he had all the VSO settings, uh, like, you know, Yosemite oh. Sam was minus 20%, and this guy was minus 30%, da-da-da-da-da. So I, I thought that was kind of interesting. And he he was just a super nice guy and really talented. Was he really techie? Um, I don't know that he was technical, but I, I think that he had done it for so long. 
And maybe it worked with like one engineer and, and together they came up with, you know, these, these uh, formulas of doing these particular characters. And so wherever he went, uh, he said, okay, this is how we do this character. Set the VSO at this. <laughs> you know, and so uh, um, mixing the London Symphony Orchestra for uh, Four Musketeers was a real hoot. That was a, uh, a great experience because I, I was probably just, you know, in my early 20s, you know, and just so many of them were, were great. Uh, you know, working with Spirit was was incredible. And I, I'm actually curious about Neil Young because I've, I've heard numerous stories about people working with him. Um, how, what was your experience like? It was different. <laughs> <laughs> different than other people's. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I worked with a, lo- a lot with David Briggs, who produced Neil Young and Spirit and Alice Cooper and Nils and all these people, right? So one of the first things we did with Neil was we uh, remixed um, Cinnamon Girl. And um, so then after that, uh, Neil wanted to start a new record. And by then, we had Studio B up and running with a new control room. And I set it up for a whole band, you know, because I knew it was going to be Crazy Horse and all that. So Neil walked in and said, oh, no, 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 no. We're not going to do this. <laughs> he said, we're going to mic up the band and we're going to put it through my sure vocal master PA. And then we're going to mic the PA and that's going to be the record. I said, oh, my God. <laughs> so I went out on a limb. I was just a, a kid, you know, and of course he's Neil Young. And I told him, I told Neil and I told David, I said, in my opinion, this isn't going to sound very good. But, you know, if you want to go down that road, we will. And so we went down that road and it sounded horrible. <laughs> and that's the last time I saw Neil. Oh, no. <laughs> Don't you wish the, it was like the, if it was the modern era, you could have so easily just, you know, recorded ISO tracks of all the mics and, you know, yeah. you could have saved the session and nobody would even know them the wiser, you know, because you just yeah. do it in the console. They'd have no idea. <laughs> yeah, exactly. exactly. But back then it would have been a big deal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just find it extraordinary. He came in and <laughs> said, we want to record through the PA. That's bizarre. Yeah, it, it'd be hard even these days like to get the PA out of the recording. Like It'd just get all over all the mics. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, what a mess. I was disappointed that he wanted to do it that way, but you know, he, he was Neil Young and I'm just a kid. So. Yeah. Yeah, who's going to argue, yeah. right? Yeah, exactly. Not me. <laughs> no, totally not. At least he didn't be like... like who told you to do that? <laughs> yeah. well, this is this is kind of off topic a little bit, but when I'm looking at the discography and I see Rick Springfield, Working Class Dog, and this is on discogs.com, mm-hmm. um, it'll show 47 versions. What well, does that mean? <laughs> like, some of them I see LP, comma, album, then I see uh, promo, I see descriptions, but and then they each of them have their own unique catalog number. How in the hell does one hit or one song have 47 versions? You know, I, I don't know to tell you the truth. And, you know, I've seen different versions of it where um, I've been credited with doing Hall and Oates, right? And I thought, I've never done Hall and Oates, right? <laughs> and, but I did try and suss it out, and it was on Discogs, and it was because some record that Hall and Oates did was like an 80s comp. And yeah. so then 
somehow they gave me credit for Hall and Oates. I think you'd have to look at each of those 47 entries and figure out why it's different. I really don't know. Yeah, it's fascinating. <laughs> Do you know what also is really interesting, talking about Rick Springfield? And I was talking, funny enough, to Jeff the other day, and uh, I said to him that, you know, that Rick is not really that famous in Australia. Zoot was a band that was back in the late 60s, early 70s. And most people are either my age or dead that used to go and see them. Um and then he had like two hits. He had one kind of mid seventies hit, um, you know, the 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 big hit in the eighties, um, working from working class dog, you know, uh, Jesse's girl, and that was kind of it. And yet he's huge in America. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't kind of it. That was it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah go well, figure. I also want to know about working with Barry Manilow. There's a name that comes up on there a lot. What was yeah, it like working yeah. with him? It was different. It was it was great because Barry's a really cool guy, mm-hmm. super nice. Um, the only sort of issue was that he he has a different sort of style of production than I huh. do, yeah, and yeah. Um, so aesthetically, just like you know his taste. Yeah, you know I mean? exactly. You know, and so at times, like you know, I can remember one time when I kept wanting to do a part over and over and over and. Because I, I didn't think it was quite there yet, you know, with a guitar player or something, and I think he, he might have gotten a little frustrated. And and I remember him hitting the talk back one time, and and him saying to the guitar player, "Bill would like you to do it again." Oh, yeah. But for the most part, uh, work with Barry was just a real delight, and he was super gracious to me in in the end and uh i can't say enough good things about him you know really maybe he was a little more jazz and you're a little bit more pop rock like you just you wanted the take to be nailed and he was he wanted it to be a little more yeah, organic would yeah, that be a way to ex- say it I don't yeah exactly he was more of like a, a live feel kind of guy and i was yeah. more like mm-hmm. a work it to death you know kind of thing yeah, make it know? perfect yeah. 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 yeah 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 another project that uh was pretty special to me was uh, I mixed Don Ellis live at the Montreux Jazz Festival and this was when he was uh, actually this was his last record and he was dying at the time actually so it, it kind of has really special meaning to me you know but really talented super guy 1978 yep sounds wow. about right what are the um, are, are, they pro- are they projects from I, I should know this but uh, Korea or Japan as far as a lot of the Asian stuff I've done? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, most of it's, um, I think I've only done a couple Korean things, but um, I've done a, a ton of Chinese and almost as much Japanese over the years. And hmm. I'm doing a Japanese project right now, actually. Do you speak any of those languages? A little just enough to communicate? or? Um, yeah, I mean, I can say like, Big speakers and little speakers, and one more time. And <laughs> uh-huh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's all you need. You know? <laughs> yeah. I can never not think of the movie um, Lost, Lost in, in Translation. Translation. Yes. Yeah. Mm. You know, where he's trying to explain the Japanese director's oh, yeah. explaining the- how to hold a glass of whiskey <laughs> it just makes me think of that yeah just in reverse <laughs> i can i can remember seeing that film and it was like i was seeing my life after shooting a commercial in seoul uh some years before and it was exactly the same i'm on set and the director who can't speak english 
or he could actually speak English, but he didn't want to, so we had a translator. And uh, and then the one day he decides he feels more comfortable, he spoke to me in English, and I turned to the translator and said, what did he say? He, he was so offended. That was the end of that relationship. Oh, that's for sure. <laughs> Oops. Um, so back to your uh, career. What was the big turning point? What was the the one thing that put you into a, a different level? Well, it's it's got to be Rick Springfield. I mean, I, I, I'd by the time I did Rick, I'd I'd already been producing and engineering for ten years, and you know, I'd sort of built up you know credibility because I had. had Actually, more hits as an engineer mixer, um, but not quite as a producer. But then after, uh, I, I did Working Class Dog with Rick and, of course, Keith. That's when I sort of, for quite a while, just engineered the projects that I was actually producing. And I didn't engineer for other people for, I don't know, probably 10 years or something like that. But um, after a while... The producing thing sort of tapered off, so back to, you know, doing a lot of mixing and engineering for others, which is fine, too, because I get a lot of creative enjoyment out of doing that, absolutely. I was going to say, which one do you prefer, producing or engineering? Um, you know, I, I, that'd be a tough call because I really like doing both, mm. and um, some projects producing turn out to be a, a lot of man hours compared to what it used to be. And, well, even the mixing stuff is, but you don't have to sit there and, you know, try and do the actual production side of it. Which is less stressful to you? Uh, Mixing. Yeah. Yeah, mixing or or recording engineering. Because you don't have the weight, you don't have the weight of the whole project on your shoulders, I guess. It's just... Exactly. I mean, when you're producing and engineering, you're doing two jobs. And if you have to deal with a record company or production coordinators, you, you got a lot on your plate. Mm. <laughs> How much involvement did the record companies used to have in the early days? Quite a bit, quite a bit. I mean, like with Rick, uh, Eddie DeJoy, who was the VP of A&R at RCA, he had quite a bit of input um, into songs, um, like maybe in the final mixes, that type of stuff. Um the promo departments had a lot, a lot of input into it. And quite often you'd make a, a, what you'd think would be a really great record. And the head of promo just didn't hear it. And so that was the kiss of death. You know, they just wouldn't put it out there. Wow. But interestingly enough, um, Eddie DeJoy, he actually signed Cat Stevens too. I think it was Chelsea or wherever it was at the time. So he he was responsible for Cat Stevens being a big hit. But Eddie Joy and Bud Dane, uh, also at RCA at the time, they both quit RCA uh, shortly after Rick, and they they went on to manage the Chipmunks. Oh, really? <laughs> and me, actually. <laughs> That's right. So there's the chipmunks connection. <laughs> it's, it's all like like five degrees related to the chipmunks. No. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so what was the next stop after Sound City? Uh, after Sound City, that was the last studio that I worked at as an employee. And um, after that, it was just that, you know, I would go to the village or whatever, and I would rent the studios because... Now I was a producer. I was the client. 
Um, so I'd, I'd be at the village or sound castle or, you know, A&M or, you know, wherever. What was your favorite studio back in the, let's say early eighties? I guess early eighties would probably be the village. Cause I didn't start working at A&M until the early nineties. And that instantly became my favorite place and still is my favorite place. What makes it special? All the rooms are really, really good, especially A and D. And consoles are great. The staff is great. Everything is is maintained really well. Um, very accommodating staff. Like if you have a big tracking date, you get multiple assistants on the project. And uh, mm-hmm. it's it's just a really class act. Also see you've had a bit of a connection, apart from Rick Springfield being an Aussie, um, with a few other Aussies. And um, there's three that stand out. And a mate of mine, when he knew I was talking to you today, Bill, um, wanted to know how you came across Mondo Rock. I was managed by um, a guy at the time, Michael Limbo. Um, he introduced me to Steve Robowski at, I think it was EMI or Columbia, whoever was uh, interacting with the Mondos at the time. And so <clears throat> Steve got me to uh, do the Mondo Rock project. And you came to Australia to do that, is that correct? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think we were there for like two months. And you, uh, from memory, I, I did actually ask Ross, who's the, the main guy from Mondo Rock, Ross Wilson, um, where it was recorded, but he hasn't got back to me. But I've got a feeling it would have been Metropolis. It could have been. I, I seem to remember it was like kind of like an upstairs room with a smaller SSL. And God, I... I Angus Davidson was our assistant. <laughs> that's about all I remember about it. Oh, okay. Well, upstairs room, that's not Metropolis, because Metropolis used to be uh, downstairs, so it could have been Sing Sing or somewhere. I'm not sure. But I know that Metropolis was an amazing old studio, that, and Bowie recorded there, Mick Jagger recorded there. What was the one down at Piermont? That was upstairs? Uh, in in, Mel- in uh, Sydney. In Sydney. Is it Rhino upstairs? No, was right, Rhino- that was uh, Festival or EMI, I think. Festival. Yeah, Festival, yeah, I EMI. Think, yeah. Yeah, it must have been one of the other ones. I'll, I'll ask Ross anyway and find out where it was. Were you happy yeah. with that record? Um, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It was a great thrill to work with those guys and, um, mm-hmm. you know, stay in Australia for a couple months. And we had an apartment um, in South Yarra. Yeah. And um, so it was a Very great nice. experience. Yeah. You would have been a neighbour of Neil Finn because he was living in South Yarra at that, at that time, I think. I'm a big fan of his. I would have loved to meet him. Yeah, they're touring again. They're actually currently on tour in New Zealand. What, the house? Yeah, Crowded House, yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Nice. So so do you prefer tracking or mixing if you had a distance as far as the engineering side of things goes? Wow. There again, it's, uh, you know, I, I like both of them because um, a really good tracking session, when you get really good players in there, um, it can just be magical and uh, so exciting. Uh, but the mixing thing I, I really enjoy too. Uh, because it, it's it's such a creative reward to to actually build something and mold something you know, out of you just get a bunch of tracks like this project upon I'm on now will probably be each song will be over 100 tracks and maybe like 130 tracks. Wow. So it, are you are you all in the box? I assume I have a, a Mac Pro with two uh, HDX cards, so I can because this project is 32 uh, 192, so I need to do. 256 voices if I can. So it's 32 bit 192K. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. All those, those tracks, tracks at that high bit rate high sample. Yeah. Yeah. Is that considered at this point, Dirigur? Like at this point, if you're going to record an album, 
Yeah, that's what you're going to do, 32-192? Well, no, she she's the only one that, uh, her name is Mari Hamada, really talented lady. And she likes to put out high-def CDs in Japan. Is why we, we used to be 24-48, but um, for the last two or three records now, it's been the high-def thing. And What's the medium? Because that wouldn't be red, that wouldn't be red, uh, what do they DSD? call it? Yeah, DSD. I don't know. Or... She would just tell me a high def CD. So I don't know. There's there, there there's DVD audio and yeah the, the all the all the high def CD standards in the are gone. They died in the US. So I wonder if it's a Blu-ray thing. Could be. Could be. Yeah, yeah. But she's been. Uh, I think her first big hits were like in the early '80s, mid '80s, and she was known as the um, Japanese queen of heavy metal. So we're still kind of doing like maybe half the record is very heavy metal. The other half is very hard rock. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) That's great. Yeah. So for a hard rock album, 132 channels still seems like a lot. What's on the tracks? Besides, you know, the basic stuff of like maybe drums being on 12 tracks or whatever. And um, she does all of her own background vocals. And, and before she, um, was a rock star, whatever. She was a session singer, so she sings all these parts by herself. She's very good at it, and she doubles, triples all these parts. So there can be, yeah, right. you know, thirty tracks of background vocals, and she likes to put on a ton of keyboards and a ton of guitars. So there can be like you know twenty, twenty-five tracks of you know guitars and just keyboards, another twenty-five, and so it it just adds all up. You know? Yeah. A lot of sound effects stuff. Does she record all that herself, or is she? Uh, do you, do you, do you know? Um, it varies. Like um, some, I'll do here, like at Henson. Um, and now, because of the pandemic, um, a lot of it we're just sending out to different players and having them send the files back. And she actually does um, all the editing because um, she's very particular about you know, what she wants to hear and what performances and all that. Um, wow. And she's very good at Pro Tools. God, managing 132 tracks and trying to edit and all the rest of it at once, that's crazy. So she already probably like lays out somewhat of a direction in that as she's monitoring, she might, you know, because if you're dealing with that many vocals, sometimes it's like, what do they mean to happen here? Where is the lead? <laughs> you're, you're dealing with so, yeah. so many stacked up things. There's multiple ways to, you know what I mean? Actually, when she delivers um, whatever finished parts to me and says, okay, do the mix now, or, or if she sends me the whole entire song, which can be like 130 tracks, it isn't close. It's, it's really, it, it, I really have to start from scratch. Oh, um, wow. Because she, she just can't take the, uh, another week to rough mix a song you know, yeah. to give it to me. So she might, I mean, with all those vocal tracks then, she must be labeling everything like specifically, like as Robert's saying, because otherwise, how do you, how are you picking what's a lead and Well, it, it's easy it? to pick out the lead it, and, and it's labeled correctly and, and there'll be doubles and there'll be like a, a lead vocal overlap and a double uh, overlap. There'll be harmony overlaps sometimes. And so everything's laid out and labeled pretty good. Yeah. But everything needs to be um, extensively EQ'd and, and extensively automated. So uh-huh. when I get 130 tracks, I can spend five days mixing it. 
it's crazy when you think about the luxuries today and what we were talking about at the beginning of your career, you know, in the late 60s, early 70s, mine started in sort of the late 80s. Even back then, you were still only talking, you know, 16, 24 tracks. And now all of a sudden, or 48. All these yeah. few years later, yeah, or 48. Now, now you know, only in a handful of years later, we're talking about 132. It's just crazy, oh, isn't yeah. it? That's, I yeah. mean, and, and look it up. Uh, there's, there's an artist bands in, war, in England named Jacob Collier, who he's a, you know, self producer and he's notorious for doing thousand track tunes. Wow. 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 Holy crap. But <laughs> you remember 10, 10 CC when they did I'm Not in Love? The process of getting that vocal down was unbelievable. Yeah, I remember on the on the last um, record that I did with Mari, which was about oh I don't know a year year and a half ago, whatever it was. One song had twenty seven meter changes within one song. That and, sounds like a Frank Zappa tune. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yes, it does. When I printed all the mixes back into the session and sent her the the file, right for the one song. It was 25 gigabytes. <laughs> that's that's how much information was in there. Wow. Uh, when so, you were doing multi-tracks, did you used to do like a, a rough mix or a mix of certain components and mix them down and bounce them down so you can free up some space on the multi-track? Occasionally, but um, not too much when it was a single 24. And we quickly got into dual 24s. Then we got into a thirty-three forty-eight with a twenty-four, and then we and or and or three twenty-four tracks. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. And but but you'd end up making A reels and B reels, and so yeah, you would, you know, combine stuff, you know, onto the B reel, um, just for monitor purposes, you know. Right. So you didn't have to run two reels the whole time, like when you're trying to overdub stuff, you know. Yeah, because when you mentioned the the drum mics, you said 17 or something tracks for the drums? Yeah, maybe like overheads, hi-hat, uh, maybe three or four ambient mics. So, I mean, and with Pro Tools, you just throw that all on a separate track, you know, and deal mm. with it later. Because it's funny because I was talking to, once again, Jeff Silverman's coming up a lot in this. Um, he has just been, I, I hope I can talk about this, but he's been sent um, some uh, master reels from Chris Brubeck, Dave Brubeck's son. He was sent actually the mono track. And it was interesting because the other tracks that Chris has are, were recorded on three track tape. Wow. Which Jeff had never heard of, three track tape. There is um, there is three track. Jim Jim Reeves, a buddy of mine, worked in New York in the '60s, and and they had three track with like a three like a three track console too. Yeah, because it was owned by Ampex, the Ampex three track machine. Wow. wow. Yeah. There you go. I think when I first started, it, four track was like the smallest I'd seen, and and at the same time we had a one inch eight track. So yeah, but I've got some photographs of those sessions when they were recording that record, and. From the photographs I've looked at, and I could be completely wrong, but it looks like they've actually mic'd the drum kit with one mic. I could see that. Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe they did they have a kick mic also or not? Didn't look like it. It looked like one mic that was centered, you know, facing, like looking at the drummer, basically. Uh-huh. It's like the Beatles three mic setup, you know? Yeah. Or Eddie Kramer with Led Zeppelin. I think that was three mics as well, wasn't it? I, I'm not sure about that one, but uh, we, we could ask him. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, give him a call. Quick, Eddie, get him on the line. Just give me a quick bell. That's fine. I have him on speed dial. <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> yes. Well, what's the most minimal 
um, setup you've ever recorded. Do you remember? Oh, God, I don't think I've ever done a minimal setup. <laughs> yeah, is there yeah. such a thing? Maybe in the, in the very early days, you know, when, you know, like, if I was learning and I was on four track, but I think even at that time, I, I think I, I used too many mics on drums, and, you know, if you only have four tracks, you don't need a shitload of microphones. Maybe, you know? maybe the most minimal one was the Neil Young setup. Yes. <laughs> Two mics on a sure vocal master. <laughs> well, that was fun. Is it over? The Pro Audio Suite recorded using Rode NTG5s and Source Connect, edited by Andrew Peters, and mixed by Voodoo Radio Imaging with tech support from George the Tech Whittem. Don't forget to subscribe to the show and join in the conversation on our Facebook group. To leave a comment, suggest a topic, or just say good day, drop us a note at our website, theproaudiosuite.com.